calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Realm presents Tales Beyond Time, episode 40. Hello and welcome back, fellow travelers. This is Tales Beyond Time, presented by Realm. I'm Marco Palmieri, here to take you the rest of the way on our journey through the afterlife, which we began in our last episode. If you're a regular listener to Tales Beyond Time, you're already familiar with author Catherine M. Valenti, so I'll waste no more time returning you to her richly imagined purgatorial world of nowhere. Here is No One Dies in Nowhere, Part 2. Eighth Terrace. The Ambitious. In the city called Nowhere, a man with the head of a heron sat comfortably in the topmost room of the policeman's tower, watching a corpse rot. It was slow going. In all honesty, Detective Balakwa had no real idea what to expect. He only recalled from his penny paperback that human bodies did indeed, under normal circumstances, rot, and they did it according to a set of rules, at a regular, repeatable, measurable rate, and from that you could reason out a lot of other things that mattered in a murder investigation. Since he had run face first into a circumstance well beyond normal, Balakwa could not rely on the niceties of rigor mortis, even if he understood them. Thus, he now devised a method to discover the rules of decomposition in nowhere. Sergeant Tomek humbly asked to be allowed to stay after the patrolmen returned to their posts. The detective agreed, but sent him for coffee straight away so that he could gather his thoughts without the raven boy fretting all over him. Balakwa lifted the corpse easily. They never did weigh very much in nowhere. He laid her out on three desks pushed together, and though he felt rather silly about it afterward, folded her hands over her chest and arranged her long, dark hair tenderly, as though it mattered. And it did matter to him very much, though he couldn't think why. He dipped a rough cloth into the wash basin in the officer's bathroom and cleaned the worst of the grime and blood out of her wounds, going back and forth from the basin with a steady rhythm that calmed his nerves and arranged the furniture of his mind in a contemplative configuration. 
After all this was done, he drew a pair of scissors from the watchman's desk and plunged them quickly between the dead woman's ribs on the left side of her torso. When he pulled them out again, red pearls seeped from the wound, falling to the flagstones with a terrible clatter. Huh, said Sergeant Tomek. He stood in the doorway, holding a cup of scalding coffee in each hand. And then the policeman waited. Sergeant Tomek waited at the window, transfixed. Detective Balakwa waited at his typewriter, ready to record any changes in the body. To write the novel of this woman's putrefaction, chapter by chapter. It was a quiet night in nowhere. Days and nights knocked at the door and went away unanswered. The corpse remained the same for a very long time. Tomek gave up over and over, crying out that it was too sad to be born, too miserable a thing to stare at, and nowhere too timeless a place to ever tolerate decay. But he always returned, with coffee or tea or hot butter toast, and the two striddles resumed their longest watch. By the next Sabbath, it had begun. On the first day, the edges of the woman's wounds flushed the color of opium flowers. On the second day, her hair turned to snow. On the third day, the stench began, and the watch room filled intolerably with the smell of frankincense, and then wild honey, and finally a deep and endless forest, loamy and ancient. On the fourth day, Balakwa held his ear to her mouth and heard the sound of gulls crying. On the fifth day, her wounds turned ultramarine and began to seep golden ink. On the sixth day, her sternum cracked, and a white lizard with blue eyes crawled out of her, which Tomek caught and trapped in a wine bottle. And on the seventh day, a small tree bloomed and broke out of her mouth, which gave a single silver fruit. This Balakwa harvested and placed in his coffee cup for further study. By the morning of the eighth day, all that remained of her were bones, hard and clear and faceted as if the skeleton were hacked out of a single diamond. Balakwa typed and typed and typed. Finally he spoke, on the day they saw the dead woman's skull emerge like new land rising from the sea. Sergeant Tomek, I believe we can safely say that she received the markings on her back pre-mortem. Time of death could not have been sooner than six days before you discovered her. And how do you know this, Detective Inspector? If she had been killed later, we would have found the poor girl already turning orange at the edges or worse. I detected then no discoloration nor any scent nor a lizard nor the sound of seagulls. Unfortunately for us, it could have been any number of days greater than six, and we would not know it unless we could somehow kill something else and record its progress. Also, when I cut into her, the body produced a quantity of pearls, whereas no pearls were found beside her on the road to nowhere. Additionally, the gore of my cut shows a distinctly different shade of ultramarine than the carving on her back. Someone wrote patience on her while she yet lived, Tomek, and listened to her anguish, and did not stop. It is dreadfully morbid, the sergeant sighed. He laid a reverent hand on the delicate foot-bones of the body. On the contrary, my boy, it is science, and we have done it. 
nothing could be more exciting than discovering, as we have done, that a set of rules lay in place of all eternity without us suspecting them. I assure you, these are not the stages of mortal decomposition. Blockwa hurried on before Tomek could wonder how he knew anything about living corpses and uncover his illicit pursuit of fiction. This is new. It is ours. It is native to nowhere. No one else in all the yawning pit of time has ever known what you and I know now. We are, finally, unique. And now we two unique fellows must proceed further on, farther in, and recompose this woman. Her name, her history, her associates, her enemies. What happened to her a fortnight ago, and how? The detective frowned. Perhaps we ought to interrogate the lizard. In its green glass bottle, the pale reptile hissed. It stuck out its blue tongue. The glass fogged with its breath. It said one word and then steamed away like water. Virtue. Ninth Terrace. The Incurious. Pieta has become a bird watcher. She leaves Awo and Savonarola often to trail silently after the strigils as they move through the city. They are so unlike her. They wear clothes of many colors. They're always busy. They eat. They live in a different nowhere than she does, one with automats and social clubs and places to be. She makes a study of them. This would be easier if she could bring herself to trade her colored glass or her belt or her scissors for one of Awo's pens or the paper a tall man with very clean teeth wants to sell her. But she cannot. She does not know yet why they are precious, but she knows she doesn't want to give them away, to let them become separate from her forever. She is not ready. So she must try to remember the birds she sees, Osprey, Oriole, Peregrine, Sparrow, Sandpiper, Ibis, Pelican, Starling, Raven, Heron. They are beautiful, and they do not see her. To them, she is not Pieta. She is no one. She is blue like the others, and blindered like the others, and the only thing she can ever do to catch their attention, to bring their eyes down onto her, is to sin, to commit a crime, to err. When the man with clean teeth tries to steal her glass, the birds come. They smell absurdly, like expensive perfume, like the counter in a fashionable shop. Their feathers rustle when they move like pages turning. They have no irises. Their voices are very nearly human. A woman with the head of an owl cuts away the sleeve of a man's robe. Now everyone will know he is bad. Pieta is fascinated, but she is afraid to do anything very bad herself. She meets Awo and Savonarola in a cloister 15 years after they first drank wine together out of a barrel. It is a round room in the Largicio quarter, with a high-domed ceiling full of grand, tall tables set with empty bowls, safe from the wind and the slow, trudging lights on the mountain. Pieta longs to eat, 
She is never hungry, but she remembers the feeling of eating, of tasting. A few dozen blue ragged souls pool their objects on a table, picking and sorting. They are trying to assemble a chess set, though fights have broken out already over whether a pepper pot or a bone whistle or pocket Slovakian dictionary makes a better king. Nothing in nowhere is important. So nothing is more important than the pepper pot and the whistle and the dictionary. Pieta watches them and imagines the players as birds. She hates chess. Savonarola agrees, though he plays anyway. Chess allows the frivolous to pretend their toys have deep meaning. The only honest game is tag, he grouses, while taking an exquisitely chinned teenaged girl's queen. Both the sleeves have been torn from her dress. What are the strigils? Pieta asks. Savonarola snorts. Where I come from, they're dull blades you use to scrape the sweat and grime from your back in a bathhouse. Not that I ever used a bathhouse, a seething puddle of greased sin. Not that I haven't scoured the breath of nowhere for a damned bath. Awo has enough sewing needles to man her entire side, pawns and all. She sticks them upright in the soft wood of the table, two neat silver rows. He can't tell you. His theology was far too prim and tidy to contain bird-headed men in trench coats. I can't tell you either. But if you suppose there are demons in one place and angels in the other, wouldn't you also suppose something has to live here? Something has to be natural to nowhere. They came when the first people arrived, says the girl with the lovely chin. She moves her knight, a mechanical library stamp. And nowhere was only an empty plain without a city. They are meant to make this place somewhat less than a hell, and to keep us from making a heaven of it. How do you know that? Savonarola snapped. The girl shrugged. I asked one. When I got arrested for writing my name a thousand times over the entrance to Benevolentia sector, she had a wren's face. She said they were formed not from clay like us, nor fire nor light, but from the stuff of the void on the face of the world. And they had not the breath of life, but the heat of life and the fluid of it. And they had a beginning but no end, an alpha and an ellipsis. And then she drank my wine and said I was pretty. And the truth was, she didn't remember very much more about being born than I did. And she read all that off a historical plaque on the upper levels. But strigils have to keep up appearances. And they wouldn't be worth much if we thought they were stuck here just like us, only they didn't even know how it happened to them, only what they had to do. So if you ask me, talking to a strigil is not so useful as you'd expect. And... They drink a lot. Checkmate. That night, Pieta goes to be with Savonarola because everything is the same and everything is nothing. And what is the point of not doing anything now? Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein. 
erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Tenth Terrace The Merciless Detective Balakwa stood in a hexagonal stone cell like all the other hexagonal stone cells. He looked out an arched window like all the other arched windows. He picked up and put down several meaningless objects. A brass key, a cracked, worn belt, a stone figure of a child seated in a chair, shards of colored glass. Sergeant Tomek assured him this was the dead woman's room, but it told him nothing. How could it? She would have traded away anything authentically her own long ago. What remained was simply someone else's rubbish. They had a name, and only that by process of elimination. Quite simply, who was missing? It had taken weeks of interrogation. More contact with the locals than Blaqua had ever suffered before. Their fearful whispers, their purposeless glazed eyes, their way of drifting off mid-sentence as though they'd forgotten language. But they got their name from the old Furioso Savonarola, who actually wept when Tomek asked whether he had lost anyone of late. What was he supposed to do now? Everyone in the policeman's union expected he could find some simple solution to it all, but the thing of it was, in his paperback, discovering the identity of the corpse opened other doors, doors within doors, obvious rivers of inquiry to dive into, personal histories to unearth, Secrets, secrets everywhere. But her name gave him nothing but this room, and this room was a dry river and a closed door. Who was she? Sergeant Tomek demanded of Savonarola, who sat below a great candle, staring at his open hands. Who did she love? Who did she hate? What was she in life? What did she do to pass the time? But the old friar just closed his hands and opened them again. Closed, open. She loved me and Owl. She hated chess. She invented a semaphore alphabet with a man climbing the mountain, though I'm reasonably sure he's not in on the scheme. If she remembered her life, she never told it to me. She's so new, you know, like a baby. When I look at her, I see the plainness of white linen being without vanity. Everyone has vanity, said Sergeant Tomek. Everyone here. The old man looked up cannily at the strigils. Behind his blinders, his eyes shone. Do you? Detective Block was squatted down on his heels. He had a suspicion, and he knew how to work on friars. You had to awe them. Morning picked at the stitches of dark. If there had been any true songbirds in nowhere, they would have sung. Balakwa fixed his black heron's eyes on the hooded soul before him. Do you remember the founding of Florence, Girolamo? That is where you lived, is it not? Don't be absurd. Florence was old when I was young. Quite so. Yet... I do remember the founding of nowhere. 
Did you know that? Some of us do, some of us don't. It's a funny old thing. Like whether or not someone like you remembers losing his baby teeth. A toss of the cognitive dice. But I remember. Lucky me. You see, the plane, the plane is the thing. The mud flat going on and on out there forever. The handful of trees, as few and as far between as living planets in empty space. The old riverbeds. Somewhere out beyond the road and the mountain, there's a black salt flat a light year across. The clouds, the stars. And people didn't come right away. It wasn't like you'd imagine. Nothing, and then hordes, all at once. People just died like dogs or fish or dinosaurs until, I don't know, what would you say, Tomek? Around the time they started painting ibexes on cave walls? The sergeant nodded his dark head. Well, my friend, you can just imagine what a mess it all was in the beginning. No system, no rules. Some people could go up the mountain as quick as you like, and some couldn't. And some could go down into the coal pits, and some couldn't. And some just milled around like cows down here. And if they tried to go on up, they found themselves turned right back around, facing the infinite floodplain with not an inch gained. But no one really had a bead on the whys and wherefores of the whole business. Cosmology just sort of happened to you, on you get. And the people down here in the mud, they just sat there or laid there or stood there for ages, really proper ages, with nothing to do. That's the worst thing for a person, to get crushed under the weight of endless, useless days. Between you and me, I don't think anyone really thought it through. I bet you'd rather have a fellow spearing you with a flaming trident every hour on the hour. At least then something would happen. Am I right? I believe I am. So these poor souls fought and fucked and screamed for a while, because those are pretty good ways to stop yourself thinking about the existential chasm of time. But they didn't bleed, and they didn't come, and nobody answered them. So eventually they started digging in the mud with whatever they'd brought in their bindles, which back then was mostly stone tools. They pulled up the stones of the moral universe and put them one on top of the other. And I'll tell you a secret, Gerald. For a while, I think this was a happier place than heaven when they were putting down those rocks. But happiness isn't the point. Not here. If we'd let you keep on with it, your lot would have built city after city, an empire of the dead. And it would look just like the world out here, only filled with legions of the mediocre and the stalled out and the unrepentant and whatever you're supposed to be. So we got called up, me and the sergeant here and all the other strigils, hatched out of an egg of ice, I'm told, though that sort of insider talk is above my pay grade. And we came bearing order, Girolamo. We came with rules in our beaks, we built nowhere together, strigils and humans, the dead and the divine. Detective Balacqua put one hand on his chest and the other over Savonarola's withered heart. Me and you, a closed system, a city on the hill, 
and I think it's beautiful. But you don't, do you? You hate it, like you hated everything you ever clapped your eyes on. Except her. So here's what I think, friend. I think you found a way to get her out. God only knows what. But you did it to her, and now she's gone. And if you tell me what happened, no one will be angry. We quite literally cannot be angry. Who could blame you? It's the nature of love, I should imagine. Girolamo Savonarola laughed. You ought to write a book, he giggled. But when Sergeant Tomek began to strip his charcoal blue robes from him, the friar began to sob instead. Eleventh Terrace The Sorrowful It hits her while she kisses Awo's naked shoulder. Awo, whose cell Pieta visits far more than any other, though in recent years she's visited many. She even found Beatrice, who turned out to be very shy and fond of rain. It is something to do, and Pieta is desperate for acts. Acts have befores and afters. They mark her movement through this air and these stones. She has tried other sins, but they are more difficult in nowhere. She cannot bring herself to envy anyone and wants for nothing. She cannot eat and she cannot strive. So there is this. And though she feels it only dimly, she holds on very tight. Pieta and Awo lie together in the lantern light of purgatory, and there is a moment when she does not know who she is, not really, and then that moment burns itself out. Pieta remembers the feeling of being Pieta. She remembers being small, and she remembers being big. All of the things that ever happened to her stack up in her mind like stones on a seashore, tottering, tottering, Pieta is getting born in a room with poppies painted on the wall. Pieta is small and delighted and running through the snow, forgetting her mother completely and throwing herself face first into the soft powder. Pieta is receiving her first communion and coughing when she oughtn't because the incense tickles her nose. And she is helping her father tend his bees in their fields. And she is walking in the woods at night with a boy named Milo, and she is living in a house by the sea with Milo, who has grown very distant with her, even though she is pregnant and they should be happy. And Pieta is giving birth to her son in a room with ultramarine flowers next to her bed in a cheap gold-painted vase. And Pieta is walking in the summer alone for once when she sees a white lizard hiding in the shade of a long, flat stone, and she takes it home and gives it a name and shows it to her son and keeps it in an old fish tank, even though Milo says it is stupid and lizards have no hearts. And Pieta is wearing her mother's diamond ring every day, even though they could use the money because no amount of snow could make her forget, not really. And Milo is so angry with her so often, Everything she does is the wrong thing. And though she still loves him, she grows very still inside. She feels as though she is trapped in ice and cannot move. 
even as she cooks and cleans and runs to the shops and teaches her classes, and she's getting older all the time. And then Pieta's teaching her son to play chess with a set made to look like a famous medieval set with funny-looking people in funny-looking chairs. She is cutting out the green felt for his Halloween costume because he insists upon being a tree this year. She is pouring herself the last of the red wine and locking up the liquor cabinet with a brass key. She is putting away her husband's clothes, his coats, his socks, his old belt, and thinking that she should have bought him a new one long ago. And she will now, she will because tomorrow will be the day she wakes up out of the ice and becomes herself again. She knows it will happen all at once, like a big silver fruit cracking open, and there she'll be, good as new, even though she thought the same yesterday and the day before and the day before that. And when the glazier's truck hits Pieta in the high street, she thinks for a moment that all that beautiful shattered colored glass lying around her is the ice breaking at last, the fruit breaking open, with Pieta whole and alive inside. But it is not. Twelfth Terrace, The Gluttonous It was a quiet night in nowhere. Detective Inspector Balakwa and Corporal Tomek shared the watch and supper and half a bottle of white wine, which both felt very excited about. The lamp stood full of oil, the basin full of fresh water, the pens full of ink, and all was as it should be. Balakwa had many times almost asked his raven-headed friend how he felt about their one great case. Tomek never mentioned it. Occasionally in their rounds they would catch a glimpse of Savonarola, naked and shunned, drifting miserably among the crowds. Once Balakwa himself had nearly run right into the woman called Awo, who stared at him as though she could punch through his delicate skull with her gaze. He hadn't been able to bear that. He'd run, run, from a local, a dead woman with nothing but her rags. And yet it had happened. So time, in its shapeless, corpulent, implacable way, bore on in nowhere, and only when he was alone did it trouble Balakwa how much they never understood about the incident, the monstrous hole at the bottom of the case file through which everything sensible tumbled out. Into this hole he began to drop the words of his novel, one by one, painstakingly, the only story he knew a story without an end, which, he supposed, was to be expected, considering the author. When it came time to open the bottle of white wine, the policeman found the cork encased in awfully thick black wax, too thick for fingernails and too awkward for beaks. Nothing to it, Corporal Tomek laughed, and drew a small pair of scissors out of the inner pocket of his coat. He worked the little blades deftly around the mouth and wiggled them up underneath till the cake of wax fell away. They were a perfectly ordinary pair of scissors, a little tarnished and stained, but utterly usual and serviceable, like Tomek himself. Detective Balakwa had no reason to notice them in the least, and yet he did. He could not stop noticing them. 
small enough for delicate work, for carving. Was that tarnish, that black smear along the shears? Balakwa cleared his throat. Has it ever woken you, knights, Tomek, that we never discovered how the old man did it? Did what, sir? Killed a dead woman. There had to be a method. That's the whole thing, you know? Means, motive, and opportunity. That's the entire thing of it. And the means just got away from us, didn't it? I suppose they did. But I wouldn't worry. It's never happened again. It's not like we had an epidemic on our hands, Balakwa. And if we had, well, you know, no one harmed but the dead. The chief would have sorted it out, I'm sure. Tomek poured the wine and handed a glass across the desk. Balakwa just looked at it. I just want to know, that's all. Haven't you ever wanted to know anything so badly it ate you away until there was nothing left of you but the not knowing? The raven grimaced. Just drink your wine, Detective Inspector. Balakwa did not blink. He thought he ought to feel something in the pit of his stomach, but all he felt was the not knowing, the canker of it, working its way through him like rot. How did you meet her? Detective Balakwa whispered. Tomek put down the glasses very carefully, as though in his hands they might break. Thirteenth Terrace The Lustful Pieta bludgeons the wall over and over, jamming her scissors into the wine-dark stone. Chips and chunks fly away as she gouges the skin of the city. The thudding and scraping of her blows fill the endless halls of tedium. They care about very little, Pieta knows. But they will care about this. Vandalizing nowhere brings them running, so she is not surprised when a man with the head of a raven steps through her door and snatches the scissors from her hands with a strength that would snap all the bones of her wrist if the bones of her wrist could still break. That's enough, miss, Sergeant Tomek says crisply, professionally. Their faces are close as kissing. Raven and girl, pale, bloodless lips, and a mouth like black shears. It's not fair, Pieta snarls at him. All I ever did wrong was be sad. Outside, the man on the mountain eats his smoke. Tomek is on top of her by the time he begins to move his arms in straight, strident lines, and she does not see. P-I-E-T-T-A. Fourteenth Terrace the contemptuous. We all have our ways of coping with it, Tomek said, running his finger around the lip of his glass. With what? Blockwa scowled. Eternity, answered the raven slowly. You have your novel. Oh, for God's sake, we all know. I have my research. It's wrong, you know. Everything, all of this. At least they lived. Fuck something up well and good enough to end up here. 
We're here. For what? Why? To punish what sin? The only difference between them and us is we wear better clothes. I can't bear it any more than they can. And it's worse, it's worse for us, Balakwa. We've just enough spark in us to draw up a rough sketch of feeling. Just a basic set. Nothing too detailed. Duty, loyalty, a smear of free will, a little want, a little envy. Just enough to know somebody else got to see what a summer looks like. But not enough for the cosmos to even look at us for one second as anything but lock and keys. And it never ends for us, don't you see? They all have the hope of progress, of the climb. This is it. Just this, nothing else forever. I was so bored, Blakwa. Tomek began to pace, tugging at his feathers, half preening, half tearing. And so I began to think. Just for the last couple of thousand years, I began to plan a way to murder a person. It's a big enough problem to take up centuries. Could it even be done? They can't, certainly. One punches the other in the nose, and it's like punching ice cream. Nothing, not even a mark. But I am a strigil. There is no record of what I can do, because no one has ever cared enough to find out. Do your job, little birdie. Get back to us at the end of everything for your performance review. What would happen if a strigil sinned? Would there be consequences? And if I could do it, if, ontologically speaking, it would be allowed to occur, how? These are worthy questions. The first experiment was obvious. I broke a man's neck in a Boedientia sector. For a minute, I thought I'd gotten it right on my first go. But no, he just sort of shivered and put his head right and went on his way. It seemed the rules held for me as well as him. After that, I kept it all in my head. The project. I thought it out while the Renaissance idiots poured in, while I walked my beat, while I watched you fumble with a sad little dime-store pot-boiler in the corner like one of the chronic masturbators down in Dissidia. Nothing physical would do it. I should have realized that. We do not move in the realm of the physical. I had to act upon the nature of a soul, to alter it so that it could not remain whole. And it would work. Balakwa, this is the important thing. It would work because of that smear of free will, that tiny table scrap of self-astrigil owns. I have to be able to act freely, or else I could not arrest or judge or mete out punishment. You have to be allowed to plunk away at your silly stories, because not even the font of all can build a being of judgment without building a being of perversity. Tomek put his hands on the windowsill and let the wind off the mud plane buffet his face. When I met Pieta, I knew she would let me do anything to her. She was in despair. They all are for a while, but hers was frozen and depthless, a continuation of who she had always been, just spooling on into the black forever. And she was right. It's not fair. It's all grotesque. 
that little spit of living and all this ocean of penance. She wanted it, Blackwa. She did. I doubt that very much, Corporal. You don't understand. She didn't care. She saw the writing on the wall, and the writing said, Fuck this place. She just wanted something to happen. We ran through all the sins first. I fucked her right away. Small mercy that we are not built sexless as the angels. Lust is the easiest. I cleaned out the automat and shoved it all down her throat till cream and syrup and relish and grease poured down her chest. She puked it all up, of course, the dead can't eat. Then on to the next like kids at a fairground. We hurled loathing and envy at each other, at the mountain, perfectly honest, more profanity than grammar could hold. I drew up a rage and beat her, though no bruises came up. We skipped sloth, since nowhere is the home and hearth of sloth and Balakwa. Nothing I could do could make that woman proud. But it was all useless anyway. Her flesh took it all as calmly as water. And so I had to retreat and think again. Solutions come so strangely, Balakwa. They steal in. Just the way you saw my scissors and knew what I'd done, your mind leaping over your habits and your inertia to arrive at a conclusion that is as much dream as logic I knew. I knew how to kill my Pieta. I returned to her that night. I held her in my arms, and one by one I buried her in virtues. I gave her all my belongings freely, and her nose shot blood onto the flagstones. I cradled her chastely with no thought of her body, and bruises rose up on her thighs. I groveled before her, and before her I was nothing, and her fingers snapped. I tended her patiently while she screamed, and Ipomone carved itself into her back. I persevered, and my diligence choked her like hands. I whispered to her all the kindnesses her husband withheld, that her son, being a child, could not imagine. And the extraordinary thing was, I meant them, Balakwa. I meant them with all my being. I loved her, and her throat split side to side like a pomegranate. Then I shoved her out the window and watched her fall. I pushed her from this world, and all the violence on her body were but the marks of her passage. Neither virtue nor sin can be committed in this place. Nowhere cannot bear it. What they do to one another matters little enough. They have chosen their course and proceed along it, stupid and wasteful and unfair as it is. But I am neither alive nor dead, neither mortal nor immortal, just meanly made with the barest thought. And so are you, Balakwa. The meanly made may sin. Who could expect better? Sin is easy, but for me, for us, to act with virtue is a violence to the whole of existence. And now she is gone, and my questions answered. Nothing happened. I was not punished. I was not even found out. I am not morally culpable because he will not deign to look at me long enough to condemn. When an angel does wrong, hell must be invented out of whole cloth to contain his sorry carcass. But we, 
we are nothing and no one, and I think it is beautiful. Fifteenth Terrace The Forgetful There is a grinding sound before she appears, like stone against stone. One moment there is nothing, the next there is Pieta, though if she heard that name now, she would not recognize it, nor even comprehend the idea of a word used to signify a person. Her mind is a silver fruit lying clean and open, without seed or rot or juice. She opens her eyes, and her eyes are black, black and several, ringed round her skull like a crown, so that she sees everywhere at once. She moves her legs, and her legs are powerful, shaggy, heavy with silver-braided, matted fur. Her claws and her tusks scrape on the bedrock beneath the mud plain as she moves with the sleuth of other bears. Because nothing in this place has ever happened only once. Their ursine sounds and their scents stretching before them toward the city they love, but no longer understand. Except that it is a warm place in the night, a heart beating in a bloodless land. And when they touch the walls, they remember faintly, distantly, the feeling of being loved. Sixteenth Terrace The Unyielding Detective Inspector Balakwa gave the signal, and every window in nowhere closed against the man with the raven's head. Tomek's cause and cries far below echoed the length of the everything, his pleas, his reasons, all of it swallowed by the gray clouds and the long nothing and no one of the endless mud plain and the red stars beyond. The mountain, for a moment, stood silent, all the lights still and dim. Blackwa wept against the shutters, and he wept for a century before opening them again. There's something about fiction set in the afterlife that fascinates me. Maybe it's simply the idea shared by all these stories that the afterlife isn't necessarily a constant paradise or eternal punishment, but that it might offer a spectrum of experiences comparable to earthly life. Having had the pleasure to both immerse myself and edit a number of such works, I can truthfully say Cat Valenti's reimagining of Dante Alighieri's Purgatorio as a murder mystery is one of my favorites. If you're in the mood for more fantastical murder mysteries, check out Gods and Lies, in which an investigator with a damaged reputation reluctantly teams up with a disgraced demigod to solve the murder of a mortal. Or for something a little more grounded, try Dark Heights, in which a true crime podcast host is roped into a decades-old murder when she discovers the wrong person was imprisoned for the crime. Both shows are out now and available wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, whatever dimension you're in, safe travels. You're listening to Tales Beyond Time, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. 
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Tales Beyond Time, Episode 40, features No One Dies in Nowhere, written by Catherine M. Valenti. It is produced by Mary Osadolahi and Marco Palmieri. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw and executive produced by Molly Barton. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and performed by Neil Helligers and Robin Miles. Audio produced by Spoken Realms. Additional editing by Nicholas Papaleo. Cover art by Kendall Thomas.